trying harder, Don. <laughs> Alrighty, let's go. Brandon, if you're here, I'll start. Sede, can you let Brandon know I want to start? Okay. I think we should give, for when we go for a break, we should give people a tag, uh, and then it buzzes, yeah. And it doesn't stop buzzing till you come in. Yeah. All right, you remember, you change places only because you need to be aware that it is easy in a church as it grows bigger to have groups that settle and don't connect at any level other than a very superficial level, eh? So we might try a few things every week till we get the hang of it, yeah? Okay, so today we switch from uh, what the series we were doing called Take Your Rightful Place to Consecration. Um, Derek, you want to come up? I just asked Derek to pray for me, because this might be a message that might change some of our lives, and I don't have the ability to do it. Guys, as a church, can we uh, stretch our hands toward Jacob and pray together? About we, before we pray, we want to thank you for Jacob's life for the rich teaching that we receive week in and week after. Our lives show the word that has become flesh in us. And we are so much better in you because of that. So we thank you and we recognize that first. Abba, now we, we pray that Abba, even as Jacob begins to teach today, that as Paul said, that there will be a demonstration of your power mm. through his words. Mm. And oftentimes, Abba, when we read that verse, we are expecting things to happen right in front of our eyes. Mm. But sometimes there are things, even big strongholds, that get broken inside of our lives. Yeah. And I pray, Abba, that as Jacob teaches tonight, as this church agrees, as, as we are yielded to hear from you and to learn from you through your word, Abba, as we agree and as we stand in unity in that, may these words that Jacob speaks, Abba, that come out of his mouth, may those words change our hearts, change our being, yeah. so that we are united in purpose for what you have for us. Yeah. We bless him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, man. Hey, so in 1873, there was this guy called D.L. Moody, and some of you have heard this phrase before. And he said, uh, he was talking to a guy called Varley, V-A-R-L-Y, and uh, he had spoken to the guy in 1872. The guy had said something to him. He goes back to him in 1873, and then he says these words, eh? And he says, the world, the world has yet to see. The world has yet to see what God can do. The world has yet to see what God will do 
not what can do, will do, what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. Crazy, eh? So this man had spoken to D.L. Moody in 1872. Moody goes on a trip to Chicago and a few, uh, few other, uh, to the UK and back and forth from Chicago. And he comes back and he speaks to Warley and he says, you said these words to me and they've really troubled me over the last year. Really troubled me. That the world is yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. And then he goes on to say to Warley that I aim to be that man. That's what he said. I aim to be that man. And there, from there on begins his journey that D.L. Moody goes on and he begins to, um, he begins to do things across the U.S. and Europe that shakes it to its very core, eh? But this quote is something else and it applies to every man and woman here. And this is why I asked Derek to pray because I won't be able to do this for you, but the Spirit of God can do something in our hearts, man. There's nobody here that cannot be just turned upside down by this word. It's not the richness of teaching. It's not the gifts of the Spirit. It's not anything. At the end of the day, it boils down to this simple fact. The world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. And then he goes and says, I aim to be that man. By God's help. By God's help. He puts that in. I'm sorry I left that out. By God's help, I aim to be that man. And so if you take the word consecrate, without going into Greek or Hebrew or anything of that sort, it simply means to separate to separate yourself wholly to the Lord. To separate yourself wholly to the Lord. That's what it means. To separate yourself wholly to the Lord. That's, at the end of the day, that's the essence of what consecrate means. To separate yourself wholly to the Lord. And there were a group of guys in the Old Testament that were known for this. And, uh, you find it in Numbers 6. Strangely enough, the only thing we remember out of Numbers 6 is uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord give you his peace, cause his face to countenance to be lifted upon you. That's what we remember. But if you read the preceding verses from Numbers 6, 1 to 21, you find that there is a group of guys that would go into this place of consecration. And they were called the Nazarites. Now, Samson was a Nazarite, and there were very few full-time Nazarites. It wasn't a clan. It wasn't a tribe. But people would go in and out of a Nazarite oath or a vow because it was prescribed in the Old Testament. And so if you go to Numbers chapter 6, verse 1 to 8, for instance. Numbers 6, verse 1 to 8. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, and I love this, 
It's, very, it's not very often that you find man or woman in the Old Testament. But here it says in verse 2, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grape wine, not even the seeds of the skins, seeds of the, or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. So it was for a time that they would do it. And they would decide the time ahead of time so that they would say, during this time, I will live as a Nazarite and I will subscribe to the Nazarite vow. And so, uh, verse 5. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. Not even for his father or for his mother or brother or sister, if they die, shall he make themselves make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of separation, he is holy to the Lord. And then if you go to verse 13, and it says, And this is the law for the Nazarite, when the time of his separation has been completed. He shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And then he'd have to offer... Um, uh, offerings, but look at what look at what the offerings were. He shall bring his gift to the Lord: one male lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, one ewe lamb a year old without blemish as a sin offering, one ram without blemish as a peace offering, a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with uh, oil, and the grain offerings and their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord. And the final thing that he would do is in verse 18, 6, 18. And it says there, And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of peace offering. Seems such an odd passage to go to, uh, to talk about consecration, but this was a normal part of um, Old Testament life where people would, decide that they were going to separate themselves wholly to the Lord. So what was the point of taking an oath that you wouldn't drink wine, that you would grow your hair, that you wouldn't touch dead bodies, and that you would give in offerings? Because, guys, remember, wine was like bubbly or coke. People would drink it every day. To say that for the next three years or the next eight months, I was not going to touch anything that was alcoholic or that had wine in it or that had grape in it was to say that in separating myself, it will have lifestyle or social implications. You know what this would mean, right? That you would go to a wedding and when you go to the wedding, you would not be able to participate even if Jesus turned it into wine. Didn't matter who turned the water into wine, you wouldn't drink it. You go for a regular meal, you couldn't drink wine. You go for a Passover meal, you couldn't drink wine. It would be out of question. There were social or lifestyle implications 
to separating yourself. We need to hear that, eh? Because we are not called to be Nazarites right now, though this uh, premise did exist in the New Testament too. But the point is, if I decide that I'm going to consecrate myself, know that there will be social and lifestyle implications. The next one. The next one was that you had to grow your hair and you could not cut your hair. What was the intent? That there would be physical implications that would make that would make visible what you were doing. There was physical implication. I remember speaking to uh, someone from the Sikh, Sikh faith, uh, a Punjabi, um, a, a very religious Punjabi, and he said, your Jesus was like us. So I said, why do you say that? He said, because um, he would grow his hair and he would wear an outfit that would make it obvious that he was holy, and so he would not be able to enter a place of disrepute without people noticing. And then he said, that's why we wear this orange turban and we dress like this, because once we put this on, we can't go around into places of ill repute, because the moment we do, people will recognize that here is a hypocrite who's going into a place he shouldn't go to. This is from a guy from the Punjabi faith. The point being, the moment I consecrate myself, and this is a difficult thing that God is inviting us into. This cannot be legislated. But there's nobody here who God is not inviting into something like this. Where there has to be something that is physically visible, that makes evident to the world around you that you have separated yourself to something or someone. That this is one of those things where it's not like Jesus saying, if you fast, don't let people know that you're fasting. This is, if you are setting yourself apart, let people know. The third thing was dead bodies. Do not touch dead bodies. Today doesn't seem like a big deal because nobody, none of us would have a problem with touching dead bodies. But in those days, a person could die of a cold next to you. Death was very normal. There would be plagues. People would die of different things. It could be a father, mother, brother, sister. They would have multiple sisters and brothers. And so the intent of the Nazarite vow in this case was to let us know that if we went down this road, uh, route, there were relational implications where our relationships would be affected by it. We would not be able to take part in relational things that are culturally um, sometimes a way of showing respect that we'd have to withdraw from. And then finally, look at the offerings that had been presented. There was no other situation where one man had to present a lamb, a ewe lamb, and a ram, a basket of flour, leavened bread, wafers smeared with oil. No other sacrifice ever demanded so much of a person because it was impossible for an ordinary man to then fulfill this vow because you could not, I mean, even by today's standards, one whole lamb is going to cost you a lot. 
In those days when people were poor, to get a lamb, to get a ewe lamb, and to get a ram, and then to get a basket of flour, and then to get wafers that are smeared with oil, and bring that all as an offering before God, would be so expensive that it was prohibitive. Which would then mean that the only way that you could do it is if some of us gathered around you because we knew what you were doing and helped you get there. So consecration could not even be completed in, in, in isolation because you would not be able to complete this offering. You would need others to help you with it. So there were financial implications. And so, what are we trying to say? We are trying to say that if you want to go down this route of D.L. Moody, where he says, the world has to see what God will do. The world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. You know what, what encourages me about that? Is that it is, it is, it is so uh, open to anybody. There is no one here who this is not open to. But this is where First Chronicles 16.9 just comes into being. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the earth, looking for someone on whose behalf he can show himself strong because they show themselves loyal. But consecration isn't a day thing. You can't grow your hair in a day. Right, Tony? It takes longer than that. So, it takes a while. So it wouldn't be something that you commit to for a day. It required time. And that is where in our busy world, it becomes so impossible to consecrate ourselves. The best we can do is bring our talents and our gifts, our two loaves and our five fish, and say, oh God, multiply it. And he still does, both for our sake and for the sake of others. But it is not what he's looking for. And so throughout history, there have been Nazarites like this. And they usually come out when there's an overwhelming stench of the world around you. That's when these men pop up. So you see Samson popping up. Samuel was another one. In 1 Samuel 1.11, in his case, he was, he was perhaps the only other Nazarite that was perhaps a full-time Nazarite. In the sense, his mother brings him to um, Eli and she says, here is my son, I dedicate him to the Lord and all the days of his life, a razor shall not touch his head. And so you have Samuel. David wasn't a Nazarite, but there were times when he would go into long periods of letting uh, not touching a certain item of food or not doing this. Uh, there were times when he would do things like that. Paul was another one. If Paul probably did it once or twice in the New Testament. That's a strange thing. This is not an Old Testament premise. You see this in the New Testament too. In Acts chapter 19, before Ephesus is completely turned around as a city that belonged to Artemis, now belonging to the living God, you will find in Acts 18.18, 18, Paul fulfilling a vow that he took where he goes into the temple and he shaves his head. Shaving the head was never a Christian or 
a mosaic or a Judaic uh, um, prescription because the pagan nations used to shave their heads when people would die so that it would look like they were mourning and they would be mourning to their gods. And so God had forbade people from shaving their heads. So every time you read that someone went and shaved their head in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it is because they were fulfilling a vow. And Paul does it in Acts 18.18. He fulfills a vow. Don't know how long he maintained it. And every time you get to a place where the world has this overwhelming stench, you will see Samson's and Samuel's and David's and Elijah's and the other one was John the Baptist. He was a man who would not touch the dainties from the king's table, who lived a certain way. What is this then? It's a prophetic sign, guys. It's a prophetic sign. It's a prophetic sign or a symbol. It's a prophetic sign or a symbol of God's covenant faithfulness. As in, I will not let the earth go without raising someone or the other who can do what I want to on the earth so that more may know me. It's a prophetic sign of God's covenant faithfulness and holiness to awaken first the church and then through the church, the world. What is a prophetic sign? Ones who consecrate themselves. What's a, what's a model in the Bible? The Nazarites. Please understand, they were not a clan, they were not a tribe, there was no um, uh, drafting into Nazarite uh, kind of a ritual. Nobody was compelled. You didn't have to do it. It wasn't a rite of passage. It was voluntary. This is what he's inviting George into, Aaron into, Prashant into, Mark into, James into. Please, give me one man. Give me one man. The world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. In every generation, God is looking for men like this across the continents. And it really shifts everything. Eh? No amount of gifts, no large church, no um, Holy Spirit revival, nothing else does this as powerfully as a man said. G.K. Chesterton um, said these words, each generation, each generation, each generation is converted by the saint. Each generation is converted by the saint who contradicts it the most. Combine these two guys, and I pray God that the Holy Spirit begins to create a hunger in some of our hearts. Man or woman, that it begins to create a hunger in your heart. This, is, this must become your cry. Oh God, I, I have heard of your deeds. I stand in, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Renew them. I want to renew them, Jacob, but I'm looking for a man or a woman whose life is consecrated to me because the world has not yet seen what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. Each generation is converted by the saint who contradicts it. 
Everything in this world is instant, instant, instant. Everything in this world is uh, get, set your, create a platform. Doesn't matter whether it's a church or the world. Create a platform. Uh, do this. Do that. You need more influence. Uh, you can do this. Um, um, let your gifts be known. Uh, put it on media. Put it on this. Put it on that. And Jesus never did this. But he was consecrated to the Father. Any questions? Exactly this. Separate to God, holy for Him. The meaning of consecration. To separate yourself wholly to the Lord. That's the meaning of the word consecrate. It is to separate yourself, as it says in number six. I am right now a part of this large group and then I'm saying, I'm separating myself and standing alone, even if I contradict, even if it has relational implications, even if it has lifestyle implications, even if it means physical implications will make me look awkward and odd, even if it means that I'll have financial implications which may cause me um, financial loss. Yet, all this is as nothing for the sake of him to whom I set myself apart. And it's an invitation to everybody. Go ahead, Marco. Yeah. 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 Any other questions? Yeah, consecration is something that needs not, doesn't need permission. Consecration is to say, I'm separating myself to be holy unto God. How you go about it differs, and we'll talk about that, different ways of doing it. Because it changes for different people, eh? Each of us has different things we are struggling with. I'll ask you a set of questions that'll make it a little more obvious. It's not a proving of our love. Eh? We, don't, we don't set up our, ourselves apart because we want to prove our love. It's not a proving of our love, but a separating cause we love. Cause, cause we love. Not because we want to prove him, prove to him that we love him. It's a separating cause we love him. In the New Testament, you'll find it in Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. Verse uh, 24, Acts 21, 24. And so this was them talking to Paul and saying to him in verse uh, 23, Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under our vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know there is nothing in what they have been told about you, that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Go to Acts 18.18. Acts 18.18, it says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and took leave with the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila, at Sancria, 
he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. This, these were voluntary things people would do. And what was the intent? Can I do something that will help me set myself apart for holy use? Can I do something physical? Sometimes you need to do something like this to break out of the rut that we are in. So, now to answer, try and answer Marcos's question and Anna's question. Um, what does this imply? It implies giving up. It is giving up smaller desires that have a hold on me or in my life, hold in my life for the sake of a greater desire. That's one. Let me write down a few more and then we can talk about it. Two. These things aren't sin. These things aren't sin, but are hindering me it's going to get uncomfortable now, eh? But are hindering me from the person I need to be. Are hindering me from the person I need to be. It could be anything from Facebook to social media to a little bit of wine or alcohol that... Uh, you may or may not be using in moderation the way you dress, the events you attend, the TV you watch, the way you spend, the way you spend time, the way you use your phone. None of these are sinful. These things aren't sin, but are hindering me from the person I need to be. So if you were honest, if you were honest, where do the lines blur and you begin to compromise and I begin to compromise? If you were honest, what distracts you or hinders you? What distracts you or hinders you from being the person that you know you should be? You know you should be. You know God, God's spoken to you. He's shown you. He's told you. There's no dearth of prophetic words. You know the entire scene. You can write a book about your future. I can. I can write a book about my future. So many have come right from 35 years ago, 33 years ago, and they've told me, Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. But why is it that the book isn't completed? Why haven't I gotten to the last page? And so when I say what hinders you, don't think of something big. 
An example I heard was, so you may say, oh, I need to spend quality time with my wife. And so the hindrance is, I should create time to spend with my wife. That's the big, that's the big thing. The small thing is, people spend an hour with their wife, with their phones next to them, and do not pay attention to their spouse. That is a small thing that needs to be taken care of. Our Christian life is being ruined by the small things that are adding up, not by the big things. We have the ability to take the big things and deal with them. But it is the small things. The, 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 the constant looking at the phone while you're sitting with the one you love. Not being present. It's the small things. It's not the big things. It's the small things that ruin us, guys. It's the little foxes that are spoiling the wine. And each of us has this in our lives, and for each of us it's different. For some of you, perhaps Facebook is not a big deal. For some of us, it's, it's consuming. And the third question is, what good thing, what good thing is bringing spiritual decay into your life. And can I give it up? And can I sacrifice it? Okay, let's talk about it now. It's giving up the smaller desires that have a hold on my life. Um, I pray God that as I say this, that it just pops up to your mind, eh? Smaller desires that have a hold in your life. If I asked you to give it up for a day or two, you would. If I asked you to give it for a month or two, you would come up with reasons why it's not a good idea. You would come up with reasons saying this is legalism. You would come up with reasons saying God knows my heart. Of course he does. So if I ask someone here who consumes Facebook to give up Facebook for the next seven months, the thought itself grips your heart and squeezes it. If I ask you to give up the wine you have or the alcohol you have for the next eight months, you can't even think of doing without it. If I ask yourself not to sit in front of the TV mindlessly flipping channels, it might be difficult because it's the way we fall off to sleep. These are the small things. But day by day by day, they are eating away at time, at a moral fiber, and at our focus. The second thing was, things that aren't sin but are hindering me from the person I need to be. Things that aren't sin. These are not sinful things. The, the strange thing about consecration is that we're not talking about sinful things. We're talking about good things that are hindering. As I'm preparing this, I'm thinking to myself, my God, the amount of time I waste. You've been robbed by me. One of the reasons I want to 
preach this is so that I can say, for your sake, O God, for, for his sake and for your sake, is there a chance, Jacob, that you would consecrate yourself? Mothers do that when they get pregnant, don't they? Mothers who drink wine, mothers who smoke, mothers who've been smoking for a while and mothers who drink wine stop. What are they doing for? They consecrate themselves for the sake of the one they're giving birth to. Can May do this? Can Don do this? Can Jillian do this? Can Derek do this? Can Sue do this? Can Jane and Sheldon do this? Can Anna and George do this? Can Diana do this? Can Emily do this? Can Tooney do this? For your sake and for his sake. And the third thing was what good thing is bringing spiritual decay? What good thing is bringing spiritual decay? What good thing is bringing spiritual decay? In Acts chapter 6, verse 2, it was odd, eh? The disciples, the apostles say, choose for us seven men full of the Holy Spirit so that we can ask them to take care of the needy widows, which is a super good thing because those that take care of widows and orphans are actually practicing perfect religion according to Jesus. And even though it was a good thing, the apostles say, we need to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Therefore, choose to, for us seven men full of the Holy Spirit so that they can take care of it. Why? Because if the apostles continue doing it, what would happen as a result would be spiritual decay of the church. And so they appoint seven and they devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Consecrate themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Because if prayer and the ministry of the word begins to decline or is, is at a certain stagnant level in a church, especially in terms of the pastor and the leadership, then know this for certain that faith will decline, holiness will decline, fruitfulness will decline, and the ministry of the word will decline. Sometimes what is happening to you is the responsibility of the ones who lead you because they are not putting in the time to prevent certain things from happening to you. Just as you would say that about your children. But some things happen to your children because you did not put in place what was required, the work that was required to keep them safe. And like Paul says, I'm the chief among those sinners. I'm not quoting Paul, I'm talking about myself. Because this hasn't happened in my life for a very, 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 very long time. But what if it happens for all of us? Any questions before we go on? Any questions, guys?
Yeah, I think when it comes to finances, start with, start with single, simple principles. And the first principle that perhaps all of us can start with is, do, am I afraid of money? Start with that. If I have the fear of money, then it will control, it will drive, it will lead, it will affect everything I do. Just start with that simple principle. Am I afraid of money? When I have less, am I afraid? Does lack scare me? Am I afraid? The fear of money is where we start. If we can deal with the fear of money and get less and less afraid of money, money is a great servant and a tyrannical master. So it's a great servant, it'll serve you well. It's amoral. It'll serve you well, but it's a tyrannical master. So the first thing I ask myself every two or three months is, hey, has the fear returned? Start there. And you can build from there. Any other questions with regard to what I was talking about? Consecration always leads to the visitation of God. Consecration always leads to the visitation of God. You go from merely being proximal to Him. You go from proximity to, you go from mere proximity to sheer presence. Mere proximity to sheer presence. Whenever someone consecrates themselves to God, God shows up. Every time an individual or a few people consecrate themselves to God, God visits. Doesn't matter whether we were talking, we are talking about the Hebrides 2.0 revival. I mean, that was the story of Stornoway. Two old ladies and a priest called Cam, and a pastor, and a, and a, and a, and a, yeah, a guy called Campbell. They consecrated themselves and an entire island was set on fire with the tangible presence of God. You see, Every time consecration happens. I mean, sometimes when people consecrate themselves, God doesn't even allow them to finish the consecration because he turns up with his presence and completely disrupts it. Case in point, First Kings um, 8, where they're consecrating Solomon's temple. And they're in the process of slaughtering lambs and um, sheep to offer to God. And in the middle of that, just when the priests are going to play the final crescendo notes to the consecration. Before it's complete, God turns up. And it says, and First Kings 8, 18 or thereabouts, it says, or 11, 18, it says, the priests could not even stand because the glory of God entered the temple. He disrupts it. He loves it. He loves it. He loves someone. You know why he loves it? Because he is holy. Kadosh. The very word kadosh, which stands, is a Hebrew word for holy, simply means set apart. That's the meaning of the word. We say kadosh, holy. The actual sense of kadosh is set apart. And so when anybody begins to consecrate themselves to the Lord, set apart to the Lord, there's so much, it's like, it's like, it's like strings playing the same note. Consecration always ends up with the visitation of God. Every revival we have heard of in the past is usually because a small group of people, doesn't matter whether it's the Moravians who changed the world many years ago or whether it's a, a Campbell here or a Wesley there, 
at some point they decided, I, by, by God's help, I want to be that man. Or I want to be that woman. Sometimes the best way to break out of a rut, a moral rut, a spiritual rut in your life is to fast from the things that always set you off. Fasting is a dying art in churches like this. Because we are free, we are freelancers who know the Father. And uh, sometimes it's good to go back to those simple practices. Not fasting from food. I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking about fasting from the things that are trapping you. Where you make a decision saying, from this day on for the next so many months, I will not. And you struggle through it for the first few days and then it becomes normal. And you find that the triggers are breaking. You find that the patterns are absent. You find that the snare is not springing. And as you begin to walk in that new freedom, you begin to know the holiness of God at a level that you haven't yet experienced it. And it begins to affect you so much that to live without it becomes intolerable. And as it becomes intolerable, the presence of the living God begins to settle on the one who has consecrated himself to God. And he says, now I have found a man who contradicts the age and so with this man, this woman, I can change things. By God's help, I want to be that man. For his sake and for your sake. And I know that's the cry of your heart. But come tomorrow morning, will I be able to do this? And come tomorrow morning, if I'm not able to do this, will there be people to help me? Saying, come on, Jacob. So what? You messed up. Get up again. Start. When our children need to excel in something, what do we do? We gather around, we, we create room for them, we uh, make sure there are no uh, uh, disturbances. We do everything in our power to help our children get that uh, A plus or um, conquer that mountain or run that race. We do everything. Why? Because it's our desire to help them do that. We make everything conducive. So let me ramp it up a little more and then we'll end. What if a place that some of us need to start with, some of us, or at least the ones that are leading others, it should at least start there. But really, it should start with all of us. I don't want to make that demarcation, but I certainly hope that you'll pray that at least since he's a pastor of the church, I hope it happens to him. Ramp it up. How? Amos chapter 2 verse 11 says, Hey, can, can, can you, can, oh God, can you once again let the prophets and the Nazarites rise up and speak? Or something to that effect. Amos, Amos chapter 2 verse 11. And so, can we get to a place where, like it says in Acts 6, 4, All of us, or at least the ones who lead, 
can we decide that we will choose to have devoted, consecrated, extended, all three words are important, times of prayer. For ourselves, we don't even know how to do this. If that doesn't happen, then at some point in this church, faith, holiness, the ministry of the word, and fruitfulness will wither. It's a set-apart activity, eh? This kind of prayer is a set-apart activity. It's not a, as I wash my dishes, let me pray activity. I'm not saying you can't do that, but it's a set-apart activity that can't be set aside for good things. Or needs. You know, I was just thinking of the Dirks when I mentioned this last week too. When Matt had to finish his doctorate, I'm sure um, Rachel stepped up with three kids to help him. When Anila had to finish her doctorate, I'm sure um, Tony stepped up, and the food was terrible, but he still did it. So the point being that someone else may have to step up so that you can do it. And you see this in the Bible. If you turn to Mark chapter 135, it's, it's such a cool scripture. Mark 135. If he needed it, why can't I understand I needed to? Mark 135. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. Luke 5.16. Luke 5.16. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. But he would withdraw. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. There is a thing to going to lonely, desolate places to pray. Because there's nothing else that can disturb you. And you don't take your phone with you. No place is lonely as long as you have Apple. That should be the new slogan, man. Don't take your phone with you. Luke 6, 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and he spent the night praying to God. Why? Because the next day he had to make a momentous decision that would require that 12 people be chosen out of which one would betray him, he knew, but 11 would change the world. So he spends an entire night praying. 
That's not how we work. We just sense the Lord. <laughs> and <laughs> you may sense the Lord, but you may never know who Judas is and who John is in the end. So this requires something that is consecrated, devoted, dedicated. And then to that, when you add the sensing of the Lord, now you have the ability to get, go get a fish that has a coin in its mouth. You also have the ability to pick 11 people who can change, God, change the world. The last scripture is uh, Luke 9.18. Luke, Luke 9.18. Uh, no, it's not 9.18. I wrote it down wrong. This is when he goes up to pray. And he goes off. To, he, he sends them off and he goes off to pray. I can't find it. But um, to devote myself to prayer, I must do these three things. Preserve time. I must persist. I must remain with what I'm doing. So preserve time as in there is a set time. Preserve it. Do not let it be disturbed. I must persist with what I'm doing. And I must remain or abide. This requires effort. This requires rest. This requires diligence. You know, other faiths practice this. Other faiths practice this. There's a certain leader who runs a relatively large country with a lot of responsibilities and recently he uh, had to inaugurate a certain um, religious institution in a certain nation. And so guess what he does? Three months before it, he starts preparing himself spiritually. And then 11 days before the actual event, he starts fasting. He goes through rites, goes through rituals. Why? Because this is, this is a leader of a nation, like a president or a prime minister, and he prepares himself. Why? Because he believes that in this institution that he's going to inaugurate, the powers will come and begin to live there. And I'm thinking to myself, so some of us spent two hours praying that this does not happen, while he started in October. And you think to yourself, he starts in October, and he then goes through an 11-day fast so that the powers of his gods can be invited into this physical structure. That kind of discipline, that kind of commitment, other faiths have it. We mock them, we laugh at what they do, but they do, and then you begin to wonder why power doesn't flow even though power is present. It's not the lack of the Spirit, it's the flow of the Spirit. The world is yet to see what God can do with a man who consecrates himself or a woman who consecrates himself to him. And by God's help, may you 
be that man or woman. Only then will I triumph over the powers of darkness that resist. Only then do I have spiritual strength to witness to the works of God and to lay my life down for the works of God. Only then do I transmit the power that I've already received from the Spirit. Only then will I see Hebrides 2.0 sweep the earth, starting from here to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, as we've been saying in the past. And so you and I are, are being invited, eh? We're being, so today, uh, how do we end? We'll have communion, but you and, I are, you and I are being, some of us are being invited, some of us are being stirred. Some of us are persuaded to consecrate ourselves relationally, physically, in terms of a lifestyle to Him. I want us to go back to those three questions. And after we answer that, we can break bread. What good thing is bringing decay, spiritual decay into your life? Sometimes it can even be a way of thinking or a desire that is so overwhelming that it now no longer is under your control. It controls you. Every time you go down a certain road, that desire or the, or the absence of something that has, you've been hungering for so long is now front and center and prevents you from thinking any other way. And it's a good desire. It's not an evil desire. It's a good desire. That's the first question. Uh, spiritual decay, another way to say it is spiritual death. What is causing death in your life spiritually? How do you define spiritual death? Another word to use is stagnancy. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed to the extent where now you're breaking out and have entered a new orbit. It's the same orbit with a few variations, like from jazz to R&B to pop. That's all. The words are still the same. Second question was, what distracts or hinders you? What distracts? or hinders you from the person from the person you want to be you want to be and know you should be Third, 
What uh, small things, small desires have a hold in your life and often they lead you to compromise. What may begin as one small glass of wine ends up on some nights becoming three glasses of wine or three glasses of brandy or whiskey. Suddenly it goes from, I'm a moderate drinker to I have lost my moderation. And yet, please understand, God is not attacking sin here. That's for another teaching. Right now he's talking about things in our lives that are good. Please don't now say that Jacob is endorsing drinking. I'm not. I'm just saying these are the things that we need to look at. Look at these three things and just for a second, ponder on what you can do about it. And then I'll read out John 17 and we'll uh, break bread. Yeah? What is it? And if you think that you have arrived at answers to any of these questions and you want to stand up and say, I decide that from this day on for the next whatever period of time, the kind of time that's required for hair to grow, for whatever period of time, I will not go down this route. Cause to be holy, to be set apart. It's so much more important to me. If you want to stand up and say that, and say, by God's grace, by God's help, this is one I, what I want to attempt. Feel free to do that too. You won't be on live stream if you stand up and speak and you likely won't be heard, so feel free, eh? Yeah. Marco, you'll have to... Uh, I'm just helping each of us. It's not... It's not correcting you. You'll have to find a concrete way of doing it. Because otherwise tomorrow you won't know where to begin. So you'll have to find a concrete way of doing it. So think about that one, eh?
you can't speak it out, that's fine, just write it down, eh? Anyone? Sorry, can you say that again, Brandon? Doing nothing. Yeah. Aaron, just give us a couple of minutes till people finish and then you can speak, okay? Thanks. Anyone else? Unless it's an actual phone call, I will not pick up my phone between 7.30 and 9.30 in the morning to look at my mail or WhatsApp till 9.30. I also will not. Or I, I go completely off Facebook, Twitter, and uh, uh, what's that other thing? I Instagram for the next seven months. For the next seven months, I will not pick up my phone between 7.30 and 9.30 unless it's a phone call. And I will not any longer check on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for the next seven months. And I will not watch news after 11 p.m. Will not. I do that for two simple reasons. One, because I'm going to consecrate myself in these areas to the Lord by doing something practical and smaller things. Smaller desires, not harmful, but time-consuming. Refuse to go down that road, both for his sake and for your sake. Anyone else? Beautiful. Anyone else? Amen. Simple, small things. Father, I used to fast. It's been ages since I've taken up a deliberate fast because I just eat one meal a day anyways. And so I've used that as an excuse. So I return to fasting one day a week. Looking forward to it, Father. Return to fasting one day a week. And nobody will know which day. 
because that's how you won fast. DoorDash is going to lose money, Father. Anyone else? amount of time we waste, eh? Yeah. Father, we want to replace the time we redeem with you and with what you direct us to do. This is not to get more brownie points, it doesn't make us more righteous, but it sets us apart for you. It doesn't make you love us more, doesn't make us more righteous. Anyone else? Let's just wait for two more minutes. Just two more minutes. Good, Betty. Thanks, Anna. Today, commit to a time, eh? Set yourself a time, guys. I'm not saying repeat your prayers. I'm just saying set yourself a time. Time breaks habits. Time creates habits. Just one more minute. 6.35, we stop. You're not saying it doesn't mean your heart doesn't desire it, eh? You're saying it just perhaps emboldens others, that's all. Awesome. Very good, Sue. Praise God. There's no condemnation in this message. There's no legalism in this message, guys. There's an invitation, a stirring up. Any takers? Last two. As we break bread, let me read a passage from John 17. From the message. 
It says there, and Jesus is saying these words, I gave them your word. The godless world hates them because of it. Because they don't join the world's ways just as I didn't join the world's ways. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you guard them from the evil one. They are no more defined by the world than I am defined by the world. Make them holy, consecrated with the truth. Your word is consecrating truth. In the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. I'm consecrating myself for their sake so that they'll be truth consecrated in their mission. One more time. I gave them your word. The godless world hates them because of it, because they didn't join the world's ways just as I didn't join the world's ways. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you guard them from the evil one. These ones sitting here are no more defined by the world than I'm defined by the world. Make them holy, consecrated with the truth. Your word is consecrating truth. In the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. I'm consecrating myself for their sake so that they'll be truth consecrated in their mission. So Father, as we approach the table, we approach it with faith. We approach it with faith. Sometimes we commemorate this table as a memorial. You don't want us to think of it as a memorial. You want us to approach it with faith. Faith that you have set us apart. Faith that you will, by your power, help us to set our time and our lives apart for you. Faith that we are all forgiven and accepted. Faith that we have eternal life right now. Faith that as we look around, we recognize this is the family that you have put us in and we belong here despite the family being highly defective. But you still have put us here. We approach this table with faith, O oh God. With faith we approach it. Church, as we drink this, we are not remembering. We are remembering with faith, yeah? We don't commemorate something uh, to just remember. This is not nostalgia. This is with faith. So once you get the elements, we'll eat and drink together. Yeah, yeah, can I have one? Mia? Okay, thanks. Thank you.
we worship you. You are here, turning lives around. We worship you. We worship you. Thanks, man. On the night that he was betrayed, everyone got bread and juice? Okay. Nick, you got yours? Okay. What's that song that goes, consecrated Lord to thee, take my do 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 Oh my God, such a hymn illiterate church this is. Okay, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, he broke it, he gave thanks, then he broke it and he said, I have set myself apart for you, even unto death. Eat this bread, eat my flesh and drink my blood, he said in John chapter 6. I have set myself apart for just one task, to die for you, to live in you. And through you to continue do, to do, through you continue do what I always wanted to finish doing. I've set myself apart for this. I consecrated myself apart. He took bread, he gave thanks, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. So that you may accrue to yourselves the benefits of my death that you may know my Father, that you may know your sins are always forgiven, you may know you will never be left alone. We remember that with faith as we eat this now in Jesus' name. Amen. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he said, this is my blood with which I write a new agreement with you. This is my blood with which, um, um, what's your name? Iris, keep her in. Let her cry, we're okay. We want you to be part of this. He gave thanks, and he said, this is my blood with which I write a new agreement with you. So we raise our glasses to you, Jesus. We thank you for this new agreement that has made our lives completely different and rich. We honor you. We declare you magnificent, marvelous, splendid majesty. And we come to freshly give you our lives that have been purchased with your blood. In Jesus' name, amen.
there'll be an AGM, which I forgot to announce earlier, on 17th of March. Um, can Evan and um, Betty come up? These guys are heading off to Belfast on Wednesday or Tuesday. Wednesday. So uh, Caleb from Belfast um, will be hosting them and uh, they're meeting with four or five others and my hope is that one day we'll be able to uh, plant something fresh in Belfast. But this is a, a first foray into Belfast where sending out people two by two to see what can be done there. And so we got four or five uni students that uh, they'll be meeting with and uh, kind of try and fathom what needs to be done in Belfast next. They're leaving Wednesday, they'll be back Monday or Tuesday. Yeah? So let's just pray for them. So Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for this simple precedent that you established where before you went somewhere, you would send out uh, your disciples two by two to go prepare, to go prepare the way of the Lord, to go prepare the way of the Lord. So we send them, not in the name of Betty and Evan, we send them in the name of Jesus Christ, the sender. And in doing so, we ask, Father, that your authority, your immunity, your protection be upon them as they go, that you will give them wise, gentle words that will be like rain in spring as they draw out what they need to draw out in Belfast. That they'll plow the ground so that when the seeding will happen a few months from now, once again crops will come up. That just like you did with us 16, 17 years ago, you will do in Belfast again with us, Father. So we bless them as they go. It's a big deal about we going first time into this particular nation. We've been to Dublin before, but this particular city. So we bless them as they go. We send them forth in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, what's that song? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I'm an heir of salvation, purchase of God, one of his spirit. Washed in his blood. One more time. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, I'm a purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. There'll be people here to pray for you. So feel free to come up if you need prayer. 
And then we can end with, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The cross, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. 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 No turning. Make sure you say hi and bye to Mary, Steve, and Jeff. They're all sitting in the wrong places now. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and if you need prayer, feel free to come up and someone will pray with you. Yeah? Bless you guys.